Mark chapter nine. Today's sermon is titled Assurance for Failures. Assurance for Failures. So when I was in high school, you know, I grew up in a family that loved sports and played sports. And as we got to high school, my brother went to play basketball and I went to play baseball. And I was, I was relatively okay for a high school student at, at baseball. So my junior year of high school, I played baseball. And baseball is more of an individual sport. It's kind of a team sport, but not really. And your, your entire record kind of depends on your pitching staff. So the reason why angels can't win games is because their pitching staff belongs in the minor leagues, right? They're horrible. And the reason why the Dodgers lose most years is because Clayton Kershaw is a choker. Now, yeah. The church is for honesty, right? Last year was an outlier. We'll say that. It was a 60-game season. Now, I was a pitcher in my junior year of high school. I had a great season. I made all baseline league. I was 6-0. and I had a sub-2 ERA. And so what happened to me, man, I got real arrogant. I kind of didn't work out that hard in the off season. And I went into my senior year thinking, man, I'm the stuff. No one's going to touch this. I'm going to go get this scholarship. Everything's going to happen right for me. So I didn't really work that hard. And then we enter into our first baseline league game and we're playing against our bitter rivals, the Altaloma Braves. Any Braves in here? That's so gross. <laughs> the funny thing now is we live like a minute away from Altaloma and my kids will go there if we stay in that house. So <laughs> not happening. We'll transfer to Osos. That's right. We got one woo for Osos. Uh, now, we're playing the Altaluma Braves, and in the first inning, they light me up for six runs. My coach pulls me, and I feel horrible. It was a shot to my pride, man. I walk off, and I'm in the dugout, and I'm dejected. I've let my coaches down. I've let myself down. And most importantly, I let my teammates down. I felt like a complete and utter failure. Now, that's kind of laughable. It's high school sports. That means nothing in the long run of life. But in that moment, man, that was my world. Like it ruined everything for me. The truth is though, as I've moved into adulthood, I've had greater and more spectacular failures, right? Since I've been following the Lord, I have failed and sinned against Jesus. Since I've been married to Katie, I've failed and sinned against her. My kids in the last year, as we've tried to lead through something that's unprecedented, we've failed. We've made bad decisions. We've made wrong decisions. Now, why do I say that? I don't invite you into me being a failure so you can kind of like distrust me or weaponize that against me. That's, that's nonsense. Don't do that. I say that to invite you into, if we all take an honest assessment of our lives, we are failures in so many ways. You see, we live in the suburbs. We live in a wealthy suburb where everyone's pretty and put together and has money and a job and a home and has things relatively under control. And the sinister thing under that is for us to naturally believe, man, I've got my stuff together. I'm not a failure. I'll never let anyone down. And we walk with this pride before the Lord and before others that God hates. And so what I want to invite you into is taking an honest assessment into, man, where have I failed? And the truth is we're all humans in this room. So we're all walking in weakness, in feebleness, in failure, in sinfulness. As much as we want to think my stuff don't stink, it does. We're all failures. Now, why this intro? 
Well, the story that we just read is a story of failure, but more importantly, it's a story of Jesus being with us in our failure. What I want you to see, let's look back at verses 14 through 18. I want you to see where did the disciples fail and where does it go from there? Mark 9, verses 14 through 18. And when they came to the disciples, they, the context here is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They were just up on the mountain and the transfiguration happened. They're coming back off the mountain and they're going to find the other nine disciples. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, when they saw Jesus, they were amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. Here it is. And they were not able. You see, the truth is the disciples in following Jesus They had been equipped, they had been called, they had been qualified, they had been empowered to be able to cast this unclean spirit out of this boy, but they were unable to do it. They were failures. So what I want to do today for our story, and we're going to kind of jump around a little bit and look at the story from a big picture level, I want to ask three questions of this story. The first question I want to ask is, what makes us failures? What should we do in our failure, failing, and why does this matter for us? Okay, so let's go through this together. First question of this story, what makes us failures? Again, we're going to jump around in the text and consider what this means. But as we jump around, I want you to see kind of two umbrella themes that we're going to walk through that make us failures. The first theme is Jesus can do what we can't do. And the second one is Jesus can't do what we can do, all right? I'm gonna walk through it, we're gonna explain it. But here's what I want you to see. With those themes, here's what makes us a failure. Our failing happens when we make Jesus the standard, okay? The Bible tells us that we all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of Jesus. You know, see, oftentimes when we're walking in pride, the reason why we're doing that is because we make ourselves or the other people standards around us. We make it a horizontal reality. Then we never feel like failures. But the truth is the Bible says, no, 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 Jesus is the standard. Let's see how you stack up to him. And then you'll feel small and weak and you'll feel your inability. Now, the first thing that makes us failures is that Jesus can do what we can't do. Jesus can do what we can't do. Look back at verse 18 with me. And whenever it seizes him, this unclean spirit, it throws the boy down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. All right, so here's what's going on here. The disciples, this desperate father with his son that is demon oppressed runs to them and says, hey, deliver my boy from this. He says this to the nine disciples that weren't on the mountain and they're unable to do it. And as we'll see later on in the story, this father runs to Jesus and says to Jesus, if you can do this, will you do this? And Jesus does that. He has compassion on the man and he delivers the boy. He is able to do what the disciples 
disciples were not able to do. Jesus is able to accomplish what we're unable to accomplish. You see, the foundation of everything in this book is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and here's how the story goes. God created everything out of nothing with the word. God sustains all things by the word of his power. And then mankind ruined everything. We sinned, we agreed with the flesh, we walked in evil and we broke God's creation. We marred the image of God. We fractured our relationship with him. Mankind ruined everything, but God in his goodness did not leave us there. Instead, God sent a hero and that hero came and he rescued us and he restored us and he redeemed us and he reconciled us. But here's the punchline to this book. The hero ain't you. The hero is Jesus Christ. You're not the hero of this story. You're not the hero of your own story. Jesus is able to do what we cannot do. Now, hopefully this is a shot on your pride. That's the intention of this sermon. It was a shot on my pride because this story is just a minor reflection of the greater story. The greater story that we could not rescue ourselves from our own sinfulness. Jesus had to do it. And in our lives, we are unable to do for ourselves what only Jesus can do for us. Let me walk through some ways in which we as humans are trying to accomplish the work of Jesus, the work that only he can do. The first way, we try to make something of our lives. So often we are walking in the futility of trying to make something of our lives. You see, there's a tension that the Bible produces for us. The Bible says that your holiness is reflected in your diligence, in your work ethic, in your honesty, in your integrity. The Proverbs says, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's just the truth of what the Proverbs teach us. And yet, in the New Testament, James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of light. So here's what that means for us. That word every, every good gift, means that everything in our lives comes by the hand of God. Everything, your job, your insurance, your car, your relationships, your children, your refrigerator, the contents in it, your joy, everything. Everything that you have in this life comes from the Father, comes from above, something that we cannot produce on our own. God graciously gifts it to us. Now, what does this mean? It means apart from Jesus, we are nothing and we have nothing. Do we understand that? Apart from Jesus, we are nothing and we have nothing. Jesus can do what we can't do and Jesus can make something of our lives where we fail to do it. Second, we try to deliver ourselves from our own sin. This is a big one. This is a huge one for us. So many of us have set up little structures to try to escape and deliver ourselves from our sin. We try to deal with our sin through every means necessary except for the person and work of Jesus Christ. We try to forget about our sin. We try to ignore our sin. We try to sweep our sin under the rug. We try to blame others for our sin. We try to act like we're victims. Therefore, I had no choice but to sin because I was victimized. We, we try to earn God's love and we try to modify our behavior out of our sinfulness. My pastor in Texas calls this a white knuckling mentality. What happens with that? 
You've ever been riding a bike or, or maybe you've got a barbell or something and you're gripping it so hard that all color drops from your knuckles. What's going on there? You're trying to overpower that thing. You're trying to control that thing. You're trying to do it on your own. And this is what we do with our sin. We try to control our sin. We try to overpower our sin. We try to manage our sin. And here's what happens with white knuckling. Number one, it cannot deliver us from our sin. Number two, it's exhausting. It is utterly exhausting because at the end of the day, we are just as sinful and broken and then we're just tired on top of it. We try to deliver ourselves from our sin and the good news of the gospel is we don't have to because we already have a deliverer. Jesus can do what we cannot do. We cannot deliver ourselves from sin, but the good news of Jesus is that he has come to do what we can't do. Number three, we try to create for ourselves meaningful identities. Man, we live in a world where this idea of identity reigns supreme. I mean, think about what we're surrounded by. Everything has become primarily about your identity, your gender, your sexuality, your ethnicity, your political affiliation. This is our leading foot in this world. And we're so often trying to say, my primary identity is X, Y, or Z. And underneath this idea of identity is this longing for approval, this longing for worth, this longing for value, and dignity in this world. I don't know if you guys saw it recently. Um, a, defensive, a defensive end for the Las Vegas Raiders, which is still really weird to say, the Las Vegas Raiders. He came out as the first active gay NFL player. Now, a lot of people applauded that as being, uh, you know, courageous and brave. That's not courageous in today's world. That's just, that's common, right? But what happened is if you actually read his, his story and you listen to some of the interviews that he was, when he was interviewed, here's what he was saying. I did this because I wanted to prove my value. I wanted to prove my worth. I wanted to show just how much approval I need and I have in my story. That's what's going on with all of us with these competing identities that we try to produce for ourselves. I'm the wealthy one. I'm the good worker. I'm the Republican. I'm the Democrat. Whatever it might be, we make this our leading foot and it's not meaningful. It has no meaning. It has zero meaning. But the story of the Bible, again, is Jesus doing what we cannot do. We cannot create for ourselves dignity, worth, value, approval. We can't do that. The good news is, though, that Genesis 1 is in the Bible. And Genesis 1 tells us that we are created in the image of God. And because we're created in the image of God, we already have intrinsic value, intrinsic worth, intrinsic dignity. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the greatest approval of all. When we believe upon Jesus, the father looks at us and he doesn't see our sinfulness. He doesn't see our past, present or future. What he sees is Jesus's righteousness clothing us. And he says to every single one of us, you are my child and I am pleased with you. Everything he says to Jesus, he says to us through the gospel. And because of that, we have a restored image and we are reconciled to the Father and our leading foot is not our political affiliation, our wealth, our relationships. Our leading foot is that we are a son or a daughter of the most high God and that is the most meaningful identity that could ever be. 
So let us stop trying to create for ourselves a meaning that Jesus has already gifted us. Jesus can do what we can't do. Finally, we are trying to live within our own purposes. Man, I preach a lot against the suburbs because that's what we live in and that's what we're surrounded by. And the constant messaging of the suburbs is go get yours. You do you. You're this independent person that doesn't need any help. And you're out there to serve numero uno, serve self, get more for self. Even if it means cutting others off, go get yours. And again, that is the opposite of the Bible. What the Bible teaches us is that we are created to love God and neighbor, serve God and neighbor, not to look at ourselves constantly, but to lift our eyes, look outward and see those that God has called us to love and to serve. And when we're living within the lie of serving self, here's what happens. We live with a purpose that will ultimately let us down. We live with a purpose that is meaningless. We live with a purpose that is void and empty because God didn't create us to serve ourselves. And again, we look at Jesus Christ and what did he do? He emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and he humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross where Jesus did not live for self. He died instead for those he came to ransom. That's what Jesus did in the gospel. And as followers of Jesus, our greatest purpose is to live like him. We cannot create our own purpose. Jesus can do what we can't do. So the first thing that makes us failures, like these disciples, is that we can't do what Jesus can do. Jesus can do what we can't do. The second thing is that Jesus can't do. Sorry, I need water. It's hot. And I'm kind of yelling a little bit, but we're enjoying it, right? (laughs) Jesus can't do what we can do. You're probably like, what do you mean? All things are possible. I can do all things through Christ. That's right. It's right here in this. You're wrong, Travis. No, no, no. No, I'm not. I'm not wrong. Let me show you this from the Bible. Jesus can't do what we can do. Look at verse 14, right at the top. When Jesus comes, they're arguing. The scribes and the disciples are arguing. Now, when the text is talking about arguing, this isn't like a righteous argument over holiness and those kind of things. This is a petty, childlike argument over a 99-cent toy at the store, right? If you have two children, you've seen this. You've seen your ch- children fight over a cardboard box, and it's, child- it's childish, and it's petty, and it's stupid. That's what's going on here. The disciples and the scribes are arguing, and they're doing so in their sin and in their anger. Look at verse 19 with me. What does Jesus say to the disciples? He answered them, O faithless generation. The disciples are walking in a faithlessness, an unfaithfulness. Look, look down to verse 24. The father confesses, help my unbelief. He is walking in unbelief. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And and at the end, Jesus says the disciples tried and failed, but he was able to do it. Now what's going on here? The essence of the gospel is that everywhere we fail to stack up, Jesus stacks up and more and gives us his resume. So what's going on here? The disciples are arguing and sinning in anger. Jesus cannot sin. Jesus is holy and blameless and perfect. He cannot sin. 
sin. He cannot fail. Jesus cannot fall short. Second, he calls the disciples faithless. Where we are faithless, Jesus is ultimately and eternally faithful to us. Jesus cannot walk in a faithlessness. Jesus can only and always be faithful. He says, the father says he has unbelief. Jesus does not walk in unbelief. Jesus does not have an ounce of unbelief in his bones. Where we fail, Jesus always succeeds. You see, Jesus, again, is the hero of the story. And everywhere that we fail and sin and turn our backs on God and walk away from him, Jesus stays faithful to us. And the greatest news of the gospel is the hero that we're longing for and we're looking for, he's ready. His only ask of us is stop trying to do the things you're not designed to do. Come to me, let go of control, let go of power, surrender to me and follow me in faith. This is Jesus's ask. And if you refuse to trust Jesus, all you gotta do is look at the cross to see how much he loves us. The lengths to which he went to rescue us. Jesus can't do what we can do, and Jesus can do what we can't do. This is what makes us failures, and this is what makes Jesus our hero. Second question, what should we do with our failures? What do we do when we feel like failures? And I love this. Like every one of us feels like utter failures right now. We feel small, we feel weak, we feel minuscule. We feel in our bones our inability to do the things God has called us to do. And that's exactly where I want you. Why? This is the place where the pump is primed to stop walking in insanity. We know insanity is continuing to do the same thing over and over again without changing results. And so often we try to please God and save ourselves and create our identities through ourselves and through our own effort. And all we're doing is walking in insanity because we do the same thing without changing results. Instead, Jesus says, look to me. I'll do something altogether different and new. So the question is, what should we do with our failures? The answer is come to Jesus in faith. Come to Jesus in faith. Hear me. The most important thing about your life is your faith. The most important thing about your life is your faith. What do you do with Jesus? How do you handle Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? And the Bible on repeat tells us that we are all people of faith. There is no such thing as atheists. We all have faith. We have faith that the sun is going to rise. We have faith that our car is going to start. We have faith that we're going to take the next breath as we're unconscious in our sleep. We have faith that the oxygen level in our atmosphere is always going to be at the right points. We have faith that the water we're about to drink is not poisoned. I'm about to do it right now because, again, I'm parched. Let's, Let's just hang in there. We have faith in these things. The problem is not faith. The problem is a misplaced faith. The problem is that we often look to these different wells and we put our faith in these things. Faith in our effort, faith in other people, faith in the things of this world where constantly the Bible is saying, no, 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 come to Jesus in faith. Come to Jesus alone in faith. Put your total trust, your total belief, your total faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, why do I say this is the answer of what we do in our failures? Well, Jesus in this story 
He comes to the father and he says, what do you want? And the father says, I want my son to be delivered from this unclean spirit, if you can do it, Jesus. And Jesus is almost incredulous. And he's like, if I can, of course I can. I can do anything for the one who believes, faith. And the father cries out, I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief. What is Jesus doing with that interaction? He's confronting some myths around faith. Specifically, I want to draw out for us three different myths about faith that we might all walk in. Myth number one, the degree of our faith determines our living. The degree of our faith, right? How much it's growing over time. You might hear this in other parts of the Christian world that the degree of your faith is everything. And hear me, it's simply not true. That's from the pit of hell. As my mother-in-law laid on her deathbed, dying from pancreatic cancer, those closest to her approached her and said, stop going to the doctors, get off the chemo, just muster up some more faith and you'll be healed from your cancer. That's disgusting. That makes me furious. You see, the truth is our faith isn't about the degrees of it and how much it's growing. The father in this story knows nothing of Jesus except what he heard. And what happened? Jesus had compassion on him and healed his son anyways. So often we think the degree of our faith determines the outcome of our life. No, no, no. Myth number two, the quality of your faith produces your desired outcomes This is the same thing, but a different angle. It's not just the degree of it. It's the quality of it. Like you examine a diamond and you want it to be pure and perfect and without blemish. So often we are trying to look for perfection, not progress in our faith. And we're looking for this quality of faith that in our humanness and our sinfulness, we won't achieve in this lifetime. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, a two-minute sermon clip from Alistair Begg went viral. And, and try and find it after service. You've got to watch it. I've watched it like 30 times. And I'll just retell the story here, but credit to him. I'm not plagiarizing. Um, Alistair Begg is telling the story of when Jesus is hanging on the cross and a thief is right next to him. And Jesus says to that thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so the man, the thief, dies and he goes to heaven And he's standing at the pearly gates and the angel that's there is approaching him and says, hey, how'd you get here? And the thief is like, I don't know. I don't know how I got here. And the angel's like, all right, well, let's do some examination here. Can we talk about justification by faith? Do you get that? And the guy's like, I'm clueless here. He's like, all right, well, let's talk about, you know, the Nicene Creed. Surely you can recite that to me. At a loss. And he says, okay, you know what? I'm stumped here. The angel says, I'm I'm stumped. I'm gonna go get my boss. And he goes to the back. He comes back with the head honcho angel. And that angel approaches the thief and he says, hey, what are you doing here? Let's talk about the authority of the Bible. Surely that's the easiest one. You've got that one. I don't know. I'm, I'm clueless there. And then the head honcho says to him, on what basis are you here? And the punchline is this. The thief says to the angel, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That is the basis of our salvation, not the perfection of our faith, not the quality of our faith, not the amount of our faith, not the degree of our faith. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. 
The thief says the man on the middle cross said I could come. Third myth about faith is about the amount of our faith being the key to our success. Another lie. It's not degree, it's not quality. It's just pure amount. If I can squeeze a little more belief into my bones, man, I'll finally get there. I'll finally have enough. This is a good way to crush yourself and hate Jesus. It's not about the amount of your faith. Yes, we want our faith to grow. Yes, we want it to be purified. We want all of those things. But most importantly about our faith is the direction of our faith. Who is our faith linked to? The means and the end. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. It's not about the quality, the perfection, the quantity of our faith. It's about who our faith is in. And this man, he's desperate for his son to be delivered. And he says, I believe you, Jesus. Help my unbelief. And he says, help me know you and grow in you and follow you. The end of our life, the end of our faith is Jesus Christ and all of his promises. Do you understand when Jesus promised to that thief, you'll be with me in paradise today. Heaven was not paradise. Heaven was being with Jesus. Do you realize when we're walking in this faith, the end of our faith is knowing and following and exalting and loving Jesus? So what do we do with our failures? We don't look at our failures. We look at our Savior. And we follow our Savior in faith. And at the very end, Jesus says to his disciples, the only way this is gonna happen is through prayer. The only way it's going to happen is through prayer. Danny Aiken says this, faith bridges the gap between divine omnipotence and human weakness. And that faith is experienced and exercised through prayer. This is how we cling to Jesus. We understand, right? When we're praying, we're not trying to twist God's arm to get him to do something for us. When we're praying, we are communing with the, with the God of the universe That's what we're doing in prayer. And the end goal of our prayer is not to get our prayer answered. The end goal of our prayer is to walk closer to Jesus, to know Jesus more, to love Jesus more. It's not about anything other than the object of your faith. What do we do with our failures? Come to Jesus in faith. Now, third and final point. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Here's why this matters, friends. If Jesus doesn't act we can do nothing and we are lost. If Jesus does act, it changes everything. Now let's play a little imagination game and let's consider this story from a different angle. Let's say this happens, the father and the son run up to the nine disciples and say, deliver my boy and they're unable to do it. But imagine then Jesus is still on the mountaintop with Peter, James and John and he doesn't come down and he doesn't encounter the father. What happens? the son ultimately suffers and dies from this unclean spirit and this desperate father becomes broken beyond belief as he loses his only son. You see, if Jesus doesn't act, we can do nothing and we're lost. If Jesus doesn't act for this father and this son, nothing changes. But the good news of our Bible is that Jesus has acted and he is acting 
And this has some very large cosmic realities to it as we consider the greatness of the gospel. When we sin against God, the Bible says we have a debt against God that we could never repay through all of our effort, through all of our holiness. We would fail to do that. We cannot repay the penalty of our sin. And the truth is Jesus has acted and he has paid the penalty of our sin as he hung on a cross, dying the death we deserve in exchange for that, gave us his life. And not only that, but Jesus, Jesus has defeated darkness, darkness and terror that rule over this world because of our sinfulness and our brokenness. Jesus has defeated it and Jesus has conquered Satan. The Bible says that when Jesus hung from a cross, he put Satan and his demons to open shame. As they thought they were killing Jesus, he was actually just killing them. And then ultimately, three days later, as Jesus got up from the grave, he put death to death. So everyone who's walking in faith in Jesus Christ fears no man, fears no death, fears not sin because we have life and forgiveness and freedom through Jesus Christ now and forevermore. If Jesus doesn't act, we, are, we have nothing and we are lost, but he has acted and through him we can have life now and forevermore. That's just the cosmic realities though. What about the small daily realities? Because I see things in my life, in my heart, in my mind, in my home, in my marriage, with my kids, in our church, in this city, in this world, that I desperately want Jesus to change, that I want him to move in power, that I want him to deliver, and I want him to give hope, and I want him to give joy, and I want him to give peace, and I want him to change. And the truth is, if he doesn't act, I'm hopeless and nothing's gonna change. But Jesus has acted and he is acting by the power of his spirit. And everything that I want him to change, man, he can change. Those sin tendencies that I still walk in, man, I have hope that Jesus can deliver me from those things. The broken and fractured relationships that I want Jesus to restore, he can do it. The painful situations in my life, the hardship, the suffering, guess what? I have hope that Jesus is acting and he can change those things. Where do you need Jesus to act? Where do you need Jesus to move? Because the truth is, you can't do it on your own. You can white knuckle yourself to death and exhaustion, or you can come to Jesus in faith, fix your eyes on him, plead with him, Jesus, move in power, change me, change my marriage, change my home, change my life, change my neighbor, change whatever else you need him to do. If he doesn't act, you have nothing and you're lost, but he is acting. That's your hope. We see it right here in this story. Jesus, through the failing disciples, a desperate father and a demon-possessed little boy, he has compassion and he moves in power. That is the heart of Jesus for you. A compassionate, loving, helping savior who says, I'm ready to be your hero. You want me to be? Do you want that? I want that. I want that for us. And the reason why I want that for me and I want that for us is because that's what God wants for us. That's God's best for us. God's best for you is not that you try to produce something of yourself, that you try to save yourself, you try to deliver yourself. God's best for you is that you stop doing all of that and simply look to Jesus in faith, empty hands of faith saying, change me like only you can. Change everything like only you can. Do you believe? If you don't, we can be just like this father. I believe, help my unbelief. And what does Jesus do? He comes in again as the hero, the rescuer, 
and he works through that man's unbelief. So don't let anything hold you back today. The degree, the amount, the perfection of your faith, everything you're trying to do that's exhausting you, just stop. I wanna plead with you, stop doing that. Confess before Jesus, I have unbelief and I need you. Have mercy on a sinner like me. And that's where Jesus comes in and rescues and redeems and restores and does everything that we long for. If you don't know what to do with that, that's okay. I want you to fill out a connect card, drop it in one of the boxes on the way out. We'd follow up with you. We'd meet with you. We'd pray with you. We'd consider that. Um, And and I'm going to do this again this week. Buck and Karen, are you guys around after service? Can you guys stay for prayer? If anyone needs prayer for anything, hear me. If you, Jesus doesn't act, you have nothing and are lost. But if Jesus does act, it changes everything. Come to him through prayer and he will act. Come up after service, Buck and Karen. Will you guys raise your hands? Just everyone knows them. They'll stand right here. Come to them for prayer. We would love to pray alongside you guys. Plead alongside you guys and watch Jesus move in power. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gospel that changes everything. We thank you that where we are lost and helpless and hopeless, you are our hero right there waiting for us, dying to save us. And we can look to you and you can change everything. We believe help our unbelief. If there's anyone in here or listening that doesn't follow you, God, I pray you would change their heart right now. Help them to follow you and to walk in love and of service and of exaltation of Jesus. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, would you help us to stop trying to save ourselves, to recognize that we are weak, fallen, frail, and feeble sinners desperately in need of Jesus. And when we look to him now and again and again and again on repeat into eternity, help us fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Help us not try to stop ourselves with obstacles around the amount of our faith or the degree of our faith or the quality of our faith that we feel like we don't have the right words or we can't say the right thing or we're too sinful. Help us to cast all of those lies where they belong, which is the pit of hell. Would you help us to look at Jesus Christ, the only sufficient one who can save us? Help us, God, see our risen and exalted Savior, our only hope in life and in death. We love you, God. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.